listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. Some years ago, when I first started this practice, uh, I had, of course, asked the question, okay, so what, um, what is this all about? What is this, this Buddhism all about? How does it work? You know? And uh, the response that I got from this teacher was, well, it's about clinging and then not clinging. So if you cannot cling, you're a Buddha. I said, oh, I got that. And then you realize the minute you get it that you're clinging. So there really wasn't a, a place where one could turn uh, and, you know, if you will, grasp the teaching or get it or anything like that without screwing up the whole thing. And... Uh, <laughs> So then, of course, I was on the lookout for clinging. Wherever there was clinging, there was not Buddha. There was not enlightenment. And I started to really consider that, uh, you know, I and others, in many respects, spend our lives clinging. The first line of the Quran, for instance, is, these words are not to be doubted. Now, I'm destroying the translation, but basically, these words are not to be doubted or, you know, don't you dare not cling to what's being said here. Uh, I remember also seeing this uh, license plate cover that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, <laughs> disciple of Christ or something like that. <laughs> Woo! Really kind of an interesting approach towards uh, spiritual opening when it's being advertised as a closure of sorts. Now, this isn't to take anything away from the mystical aspects of either Islam or Christianity, which I think is, if, you, if, they, are, if they are considered in uh, an open way, point us right into the house of God, just like all other things. But it's in our clinging that we can run into such incredible difficulty. And so that's basically... The teaching. The teaching is really about letting go. That we are in a place of anguish and pain much of the time, and then what the Buddha taught at least was that there's a cause to this pain, whatever it might be, emotional, physical, whatever, and that there is then a release from this pain, this anguish, this suffering, and then here's how you do it. So there are four what he called noble truths that point us in this direction that I talk around and talk about fairly frequently. But if we can recognize that as Westerners, we hear this typically as, okay, wait, there's, there's pain, yeah, okay, and there's a cause to it, okay, and then there's an end to it, now you're talking 
Here's how you do it. Show me that one. <laughs> and the tragedy here is that in order to get to that fourth noble truth, in order to really uncover that path for yourself or for ourselves, we have to really, really, really get clear on what it means to suffer. What it means to really struggle. What it means to feel pitted against something, someone, some situation, or reality itself. If we can become very intimate with that, if we can become very intimate with all aspects of being, whether they feel good or feel bad, if we can let them in, dance with them, make friends with them, not like try to turn them into anything, but just be so familiar with what darkens our days and what enlivens our step. We can then develop an intimacy with being that allows for that fourth noble truth, that path to show itself. We begin to recognize the signs. And this is why Ajahn Shah, when he, he said, uh, those who have not wept deeply have not yet begun to meditate. It's in our acceptance, our radical acceptance of what is, that we're offered a red carpet directing us into the house of God. Now, I know plenty of people uh, say that the shortcut is just to accept a teaching or accept uh, a, a person who embodies the teaching and so forth. And that may, may work, but there's an awful lot of stickiness that can show up in situations like that. And so I would encourage any and all of you who are really interested in walking on that red carpet don't avoid anything. Face everything. Avoid absolutely nothing. And when we say face it, it's here I am. Not surprising that this is the exact shape of one of the great spiritual teachers. Utterly open, utterly vulnerable on an instrument of torture, hanging on a cross. I think if you're going to be killed, that's probably one of the last ways you want to go. But in that space, recognizing fully, accepting fully what was going on as it was going on. And then that opening served as a teaching for millions, millions of us. All the great spiritual masters, actually, the men and women throughout history who have walked this path have done so with open hearts, open minds, open bodies to the experience of living fully. No matter what could possibly show up, they were right there, and they didn't run away. They faced it. 
And the cool thing is that we all get a chance to do this continually. Continually. The universe gives us exactly the right dosage too. But this is too much. No, no, no. It's perfect. If you can get to the space where you're going, this is too much, now you're right on that edge. And the view from there, while it might bring a bit of spiritual vertigo, is something quite remarkable. Don't miss it. And also, it's important not to miss the, those beautiful light moments of silliness. <laughs> Kids have a way of reminding us of this continually. And I feel so blessed to have these little Buddhas running around my house, even though they keep me awake at night. Damn them. <laughs> but today, my daughter just absolutely cracked me up. Uh, I was giving her some bread uh, with some uh, uh, peanut butter and jelly on it. And I took the bread out of the refrigerator. Okay, because we, we have some of our bread is in the refrigerator and then some of our bread is in, in the cupboard uh, depending on its, I don't know, Allie has this formula for it. I don't really know what goes where. I just do what I'm told pretty much. But anyway, so I grab out of the refrigerator and I'm spreading the peanut butter and jelly on it. And she says, oh, Dad, no. I don't want bread that comes out of the refrigerator. I want bread that comes out of the cupboardator. <laughs> Ah, uh, you mean the cupboard? No, the cupboard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cupboard. She recognized her goof and everything. It was just so precious. And you get every one of those. You can also stand in that white hot fire with equal aplomb. That's the challenge. Can you let stuff like that fill you? Can you let tragedy fill you? Can you let the blessings and the hammerings we take tenderize you. Can they tenderize us into something a little softer, something a little more flexible, a little more spacious? Let's hope. Tonight as we sit, allow whatever is to be there. Allow yourself to be opened by this experience, as opposed to being closed by this experience, whatever your experience might be. So for the next 30 or so minutes, all you got to do is just be right here. Practice with the sounds. Our strange clock that we have on the wall that sometimes ticks and sometimes doesn't. The dogs barking in the back, the wind rustling through the trees, the sound of your neighbor's stomach, recognizing it did not like what it had prior to coming. <laughs> whatever, whatever it is, just be right here, right now.
So we talked about these, these four, four noble truths, these, these uh, spiritual axioms or uh, <laughs> laws that the, uh, the Buddha had talked about. And if we can squish them down to three, lightning probably won't strike me, but if it does back up, if we can squish them down to three, we would basically look at this as there's a struggle, there's a cause to the struggle, and there's an end to the struggle. Uh, or we could say there's, there's, a, there's a struggle, there's a cause, and then there's a way out. Paradoxically, the way out is by going in. Rumi says, pain will be born from that look cast inside yourself, and this pain will make you go behind the veil. Jalaluddin Rumi, the guy that wrote this, uh, is something else. If you, you want to look at a poet who had a real sense of the ecstasy of being, uh, reading Rumi, I think, makes a lot of sense. It can inspire us in really powerful ways. Pain will be born from that look cast inside yourself, and this pain will make you go behind the veil. Now, pain, especially in the West, is something we avoid at all costs. We go after pleasure that which feels good, that which feels good continually. And if it didn't feel quite as good the second or third time, we'll go the fourth and fifth time and, time and just add more, and maybe it'll feel better. It just seems to be, uh, maybe it's not fair for me to say that that's Western. No, I think that's human. Just we've perfected it in the West. Um, recognizing, though, this struggle is key. Recognizing this fight we seem to have with reality, this fight we seem to have in life, this fight we have with our life, this fight we have, whatever the fight might be, be it small or something just massive, recognizing that, really being clear about what that is, is incredibly powerful. It takes us on a path that offers, at least, to let us glimpse what's behind the veil, what's behind the curtain. We get to see the real wizard. As opposed to the projection, we get to see what's behind the curtain. And in one respect, it's really disappointing. In the other respect, it's truth. And truth has a way of carrying itself through us when it's recognized. So with that in mind, um, this is an adventure. And our intrepid natures are called upon if we really want to, you know, kind of dig into this. I had a, uh, a, a math teacher in fourth and fifth grade who taught me the meaning of the word intrepid. <laughs> Because it wasn't just that she was uh, amazing in the classroom, full of energy, with this Farrah Fawcett hairstyle that was bright red. Mrs. Smith was her name. Uh, and Mrs. Smith had this way about her of 
turning binary functions into something really cool. You know? Simplest algebraic formulations were like, wow, that's really cool, you know, because of her enthusiasm. And she carried this enthusiasm uh, uh, with her wherever she walked. I mean, and, and boy, could she walk. Um, when she would go down the hallway, it's like, you know, kids are flying right and left because she would, you know, just really, really focused on what she was doing and so forth. And then she was somehow, I don't know what went through her head, but she decided, what if I took 60 kids, 60 of my students, oh hell, if there are kids from other parts of the district that want to go, we'll take them too. Let's go across the East Coast as a group. Now this is before the days of packaged trips, Phyllis Smith would take groups of kids and uh, a handful of chaperones with her uh, to DC, to New York, to uh, Williamsburg. It just we saw everything. We saw everything. We saw every single tavern on the on the uh, on the East Coast, and every single toe toaster that was used. You put your bread in and you kick it around towards the flame, and then you you know you you rotate this thing until your toast was ready. As silly as this sounds, I remember thinking to myself, even at the you know the the young age of of you know 10, 11 years old, how the heck does she do this? How does she stay? like that, what fire burns in her? The point of this is there was fire that was so beautiful, it burned so beautifully in her, and it is apparent in each of us if we give it space. Its fuel is space. Its fuel is the surrender. Now, this isn't to say that Phyllis Smith didn't have lots of clinging going on. She had tons, but the fire was something that was all about release. It was so inspiring to just be near her. So taking a real careful look at whatever this struggle might be requires a certain amount of that. And it must be directed it's not just about burning, burning bright. It's about burning like a laser. And when we do this, we start to, when we take this inward step, we start looking at how so much of our lives are built around protecting things that will be taken from us very naturally. We can't keep anything. Everything falls away. And yet entire lives are built on protecting our loves, our livelihoods, our minds, our reputations, and preserving what works to support this. is what we tend to do as human beings. Eradicating the things that disallow for this is how we make our lives. And the radical proposition here is, what if we created some space around that? What if we stopped trying to protect? We stopped trying to defend everything. And at the same time, we didn't reject anything. 
is there a middle space? I would argue yes. And there are tons of mystics that are point, have pointed to this for centuries. Tons of great writing that is all about, wait, there is this middle space where we are not trying to protect and preserve and defend, preserve, protect, and defend. And we are neither, neither are we, I should say, trying to reject outright anything. And in the process of meeting that middle space, it's amazing what's preserved, protected, and defended. We might look at that, which is preserved, protected, and defended as being what is sacred in all of us. We begin to realize that at least. So um, that leads us into at least, you know, what, uh, what causes this struggle? What causes this need for us to protect? Well, part of it is very natural. We have, you know, biological tendencies to take us in, you know, very, very specific directions. But we also cling to struggle itself. We cling to this idea somehow that life is difficult or life is hard because it's so familiar for so many of us. Life is, oh, it's just the way it is. How many times have we heard somebody say, uh, you know, when, when called out on something, you know what, you're, you're, being, you're, you're being really aggressive. Well, I'm just an aggressive person. That's the way I am. Oh. <laughs> well, I guess the conversation's over then. You know, when there's that clinging, that clinging occurs because of a feeling that, as I mentioned, there's, there's something that must be defended. Great question for each of us in spiritual terms. What is it about our situation? What is it about us? What is it about our personalities? What, what is it that needs to be defended? Now, the ego is going to love to take this to logical extreme. Well, Mike, don't you want to defend your daughters? Yes. They will not date until they're over 40. <laughs> but more importantly, more importantly, I want to let them go. Letting them go is what lets them grow. And this applies to all beings. This applies most importantly to ourselves and our own cling, our own attachments. What are you clinging to? What do you hang on to? It sometimes helps when we recognize that everything in this material world is temporary, as I said. You know, everything is temporary. There's nothing that lasts forever. No thing lasts forever. So working to preserve, protect, and defend those things is either a really good definition of insanity or a really good definition of what normal living is, and maybe they're both somewhat the same, depending on who you talk to. That all things are fleeting. Now, this either can depress us and create closure, or it can inspire us, and that's the hope, of course, with the, with the teaching, to live with that in mind. If everything is fleeting, if everything's going to be taken from us, how are we going to live? How are we going to, how are we going to live? 
hopefully, with a real deep and radical appreciation for this moment, and this moment, and this moment, and this tear, and this smile. We also recognize that part of the cause to the struggle, in addition to trying to preserve things, make them permanent, make them last, we sometimes fail to recognize that every single thing in this universe is interdependent. It depends on all things. Without getting too dark, the oil spill is reminding me daily, I'm trying not to uh, go the other direction when I see the horrific images of what's, what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico or in Afghanistan or in Darfur, wherever. Can we remain right there? Can we actually be open to the cries of the world, whether they are human or you know, animal or environmental? Can we be right there? Can we recognize that everything depends on everything else, that nothing can exist in isolation, that our mourning Eggs depend on all sorts of things. Do we get them in a way that's, that treats those animals ethically or not? Or does it even matter? Maybe it doesn't matter. Is our coffee fair trade coffee? Is our way of life worth preserving at all costs. Simultaneously, we can bring philosophy, politics, economics, every discipline in to our experience from, uh, from this perspective. And it transcends your party, whatever that party is. It's a way of being in the world when we recognize that everything is temporary and everything is interdependent and that every single time we go through the grocery store, everything we buy is a vote. Again, that has nothing to do with one's party, one's identity. It has everything to do with one's meeting the world. How do we do that? How do we do that in a constructive way? How do we do that in a way that recognizes fully that all things depend on everything else. And lastly, can we recognize that every single thing on this planet is none other than an expression of spirit? There is not one thing that is not God dancing. All things are an expression of the inf infinite or infernet. <laughs> All things. There's nothing that is not part of the infinite. There's nothing that is separate from the infinite. There's nothing that is separate from God. Makes praying to God kind of interesting, doesn't it? If all things are God, 
we are praying as God's own voice echoes to his own ears, which is just the way she likes it. <laughs> so, is there a way out? Yeah. If we can meet our struggle, if we can recognize that everything is temporary, that everything is interdependent, and that everything is the infinite in action, then we can begin to study our clinging. We can study our own clinging. And it's especially helpful when we can do that before we point the finger at somebody else's clinging. That's always the easiest starting place, but the most profoundly helpful is when we can actually recognize it within ourselves, when we can recognize the areas where we cling, the situations, the people, the feelings, when we can recognize that craving, that clinging, that tendency. That's step one. And step two is to be aware of what we habitually go after and what we habitually avoid and to what degree. So it's not just looking at our own clinging. We take that into a more subtle step when we are ready. And that more subtle step is to what extent am I leaning into something and to what extent am I resisting The awareness of these things is what keeps us clear. It's what opens us. It's what creates a release to that tendency for us to grasp. And this is exactly why we meditate. We can meditate to make ourselves calm. And that works for a while. What's really powerful about meditation is it allows us to see things more clearly. We can see to what extent we are leaning in, going for a grasp or grasping itself. To what extent is there aversion or is there out and out running away? To what extent is this body of mine in this moment feeling a certain sense? Can I recognize? Can I accept? Everything that's happening? When we can ask ourselves these, these questions, ask ourselves these questions, we, we can begin to actually uncover a very deep well of still spaciousness that actually is underneath everything. And the peace that this offers us and every other life that we touch is a gift unlike any other. Any situation that we're in can inspire this type of work in us. And it's not easy. It's very simple, but not easy. But it is, after all, what happens when we begin to look inward and we see that there is pain or some event has inspired a tremendous amount of pain and it forces that look. The gift is it offers us a chance to go behind the veil 
And in going behind that veil that Rumi speaks of, we are actually able to uncover the radical truth beyond name and form that every single mystic has ever talked about. <clears throat> Awakening to this, through this, with this, is the work. And you don't have to be anything special to do it. You can be utterly normal. In fact, you can be so normal that you weaken people with your presence <coughs> because you're clear and you're true and you're authentic and you're integrated. That's my wish for all of you. Thank you. That guy in front of you was coughing. <laughs> the middle space. The middle space. Yeah. Could you elaborate? Yeah, sure. The middle space is actually, I mean, we can look at it. There are a couple different names for it. The middle space is the space that is not, uh, it's neither about greed nor aversion. It's neither about grasping nor rejecting, right? It's not, it's neither, it's some space mystically, in between. And we call it the now. We call it, um, we call it, uh, we call it space. We call it the space between. We call it the middle way. And all it is, essentially, is an opening where there is no movement. There's no m movement towards or away from anything. The one I like, but the, what I like the best is it, it's being. And it's, it's, it is an expression of, of the infinite because it is infinite. And it's something that each of us has. Uh, an experience of, we all have an experience of being. It's not a thing. Being is not a thing. It's I am-ness. It's, it's here. It's now. It's being. It's open. Prior to any movement. Prior to any grasp. Prior to any any aversion. So when we can embody kind of this consciously, when we can kind of, you know, we hear stories about it, we read books about it and so forth, but when we actually put our butts in the chair or on the cushion or whatever, and we actually begin to meditate, we start to have a felt sense of what it is. And we see that it is precisely not what we thought it was, <laughs> and it's not who we think we are. It's beyond. And this is beyond the veil. Does that kind of make sense? All right. I'll meet you there.
Okay. <laughs>